So in the late 1990s, despite having over 7,000 different characters to utilize, the Marvel Corporation was actually trying to crawl out of bankruptcy. Uh, I don't know if you remember Marvel Corporation in the mid to late 90s, but they had all these characters and really all of their revenue came from comic books or licensing these characters to be able to make toys and things like this. And so Marvel was in bad financial shape trying to come out of bankruptcy. And one of the toy makers who knew that his business was toast if Marvel didn't survive, this toy maker stepped in, took control of the stock, tried to pull the company out of bankruptcy, and they called in in 1999 a new CEO for Marvel named Peter Cuneo. Cuneo was a Navy man who came in with a business reputation for turning companies around, especially companies that sold personal healthcare products or Remington razors, if you remember those commercials. This was Cuneo's type of work. And so Cuneo comes in, evaluates the culture at Marvel, realizes they need to make some problems, gets the stock under control a little bit, capital under control, and then decides we need to use these characters to make movies. That turned out to be a good decision. <laughs> that decision has changed the last 20 plus years of our culture and movie watching. And so he begins to develop all of these movies and, and Marvel's worth quite a bit of money at this point, well as Disney ended up, ended up taking over. So a few days ago, my family was at home. We were watching one of these Marvel movies and one of our kids noticed a name in one movie that connected to a name in another movie. Now, I've watched a few of the Marvel movies. I'm not obsessed, I don't know really what's going on. I enjoy the movies, but they have watched the movies so many times that they hear one name mentioned in a movie and all of a sudden it triggers something in another movie that they hadn't noticed before because the way this Marvel thing works is all of these pieces fit together. Now here's something I've noticed. People get excited about the Bible, and people get excited about their faith, and people get excited about Christian theology when they start seeing things as connected together. When you begin to see the pieces of your Bible connected together, and you notice something in one part, and you think, oh yeah, that connects to another part, and all of these characters come together, and all these stories come together, and the way that we live inside the Marvel universe becomes the way we live inside of scripture and to see all these pieces coming together, it will change your love for God's word like nothing else, the way we see these pieces connected together. And this morning, as we look at this passage from Mark chapter 11, I want you to see that a passage about the temple is meant to draw together all these pieces across scripture so that we understand what it truly means to worship God, what it truly means to be devoted to Jesus. Let's have together as a church, this is one of my commitments to us as a church, is that we would see how the pieces of scripture fit together. Now, how do my kids know the way these Marvel movies fit together? Because they watch them all dozens of times, and the more you watch them, the more you see the pieces fit together. How do we know the way our Bible fits together? We read the stories multiple times and we meditate on the way they connect together and we begin to see the pieces draw together and we help one another make connections we wouldn't have made otherwise. So this morning, we are talking about what is true worship and we're gonna connect the pieces of the temple from Mark chapter 11 to see that. 
Mark chapter 11, starting in verse 12. Let's work through this. Let's see the small pieces so we can connect them to the big picture. Mark chapter 11, verse 12. It says, on the following day, when they came from Bethany, Jesus was hungry. Okay, seems like a small setup to the story. Previously, the previous day, Jesus had ridden into the city on a donkey, proclaiming the people are shouting, Hosanna, here comes your king. He goes into the temple, he looks around, and he leaves. And now they're coming back in the next day, and it says that Jesus is hungry. Probably a small comment here, but the only other time in Mark's gospel we see someone being hungry, it's also a situation where Jesus is pushing back against some of the the temple regulations and and the regulations for what it meant to truly follow the law. So there's something going on here in this verse. And then in verse 13, at the beginning it says, and seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. Here's a picture up here of a fig tree. Now, our house that we lived in in Mississippi, when we lived in Bay St. Louis down there on the coast in in Mississippi, we actually had a fig tree in the backyard. Underrated fruit, let me tell you. Like, uh, not not bad. I I was pretty skeptical when we moved in and the realtor said, yeah, there's a fig tree here. Felt like it was kind of a letdown. Not bad. Anybody have a fig tree? Anybody here? Any fig trees? Oh, we do have a taker for a fig tree. We'll all be coming to see you. Uh, afterwards. And if I get anything wrong about figs, let me know. But uh, these figs, as the leaves would develop and begin to prepare for the fruit, this is kind of a, a picture of what that would look like. Well, what happens next? Middle of 13. When Jesus came to it, he found nothing but leaves on the tree, for it was not the season for figs. Now the figs in this part of the world where Jesus would have been, they they mainly ripened, they mainly came in the summer in two different crops. And so if Jesus is coming into Jerusalem, this is around the springtime, around the time of Passover. And so he sees this tree with leaves, but there are no figs on it. Now there's a picture going on here. Here's a tree that looks fruitful. It looks like it should be producing fruit, but there's no fruit on the tree. So what does Jesus do in verse 14? He said to the tree, may no one ever eat fruit from you again, and his disciples heard it. You're like, whoa, Jesus, overreaction. Uh, Now we we learned in verse 12 that Jesus was hungry, and so you're like, is Jesus hangry? Is he he cursing this this fig tree because he's hungry? No, we know that Jesus had real emotions, real hunger, but he had had better control over his emotions, in fact, perfect control over his emotions, where we get hungry and we might try to curse the fig tree or curse the refrigerator or whatever, but, but here's Jesus pronouncing this curse on this tree. What's he doing? He's acting out a parable. He's presenting a lesson before his disciples. His disciples hear it, And we know in the Gospels, hearing is not just something you actually do with your physical ears. It's hearing to understand what's happening in the story. And so here's a tree that looks like it should be fruitful. It doesn't have fruit on it. And so Jesus pronounces this curse on it. Now what happens to the tree? Well, look in verse 15. They came to Jerusalem and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who were selling and those who were buying in the temple. And you might think to yourself, whoa, time out. We just had a story about a tree, about a fig tree here that was being cursed, 
and now immediately we've switched to a story about a fig tree. What's going on here? This is a Mark sandwich. Like, Mark loves his sandwiches. We've talked about this. I've convinced you of peanut butter and jelly, grilled peanut butter and jelly. Like, we, we understand what is going on here. You see this all throughout your Bible, and you especially see it in the Gospel of Mark, where he'll start a story, he'll interrupt the story, and then he'll come back and finish the beginning, or finish the story that he had started. So it's A, B, A. That's exactly what's going on here. He started the fig tree story, and now he's gonna tell us something about the temple, and then he's gonna come back and finish the fig tree story. Why? Why would he do that? Because the stories are connected. Because what happens to the fig tree is meant to connect to what's going to happen to the temple. When you see the fig tree that looks fruitful, but it gives no fruit, and it's cursed, that tells you something about what Jesus is going to do in the temple. And he comes in here, and all these people are buying and selling in the temple in the middle of verse 15. What does he do? Now he's really angry. Now he's really angry at this point. He comes in and he's overturning the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. This is a famous scene from the Gospels. Oftentimes, this scene, especially when you read it in the Gospel of John, is called the cleansing of the temple. And in fact, if your Bible has those like subtitles or those subheadings above sections, it may even call this Jesus cleanses the temple. Let's be clear that at this point, Jesus is, is not like cleansing the temple to reform it. Jesus is pronouncing judgment on the temple. He has come in to overturn these tables to say, this is not the work of the Lord happening here. A couple of interesting things from this verse. When Jesus' parents came to the temple after his birth, they were poor. They didn't have a lot of money. You can remember the first time you had kids and the feeling of like, we just have nothing. We're just trying to, trying to make it with these little kids. They come to the temple and they're poor. They don't have much. And so what do they have to get as a sacrifice to, to, to provide? They have to purchase pigeons. These, these little pigeons. And so as Jesus comes into the temple as a grown man and sees all these things happening that don't honor his heavenly father, there's a good chance he would have remembered the stories that his earthly parents told him as well about coming to the temple and being poor and having to buy these pigeons and most likely being taken advantage of. And there's another connection happening here. If you like to mark in your Bible or you like to make connections, I'm almost certain there's a connection between this verse and the very last verse in the book of Zechariah in the Old Testament. We saw last week and the week before that, that things that are going on in this story seem to be tightly connected to the book of Zechariah in the Old Testament. I know it takes some work to find Zechariah in the Old Testament, but if you look back, and especially if you look at chapter 14, verse 31, it says that when the day of the Lord comes, there will be no more trading in the temple. And when Jesus is coming and he's driving out those who are trading, it feels like a fulfillment of the prophecy, prophecy from Zechariah chapter 14. Now, let's stop for a second, second and think about the temple. I've got a picture for you on the screen. This is a layout of, of the temple. Right side of the screen is north, coming towards you is east, up and to the left is west to kind of give you an orientation. When Adam and Eve 
are driven out of the Garden of Eden, they're driven out to the east. And so when the tabernacle and later the temple were built, to get back into the temple, to get back into the Holy of Holies, you would always go from east to west because it was imagery of going back into the holy presence of God, to be sinful and then to be able to go back into God's presence. So to enter into that taller portion, that holy of holies, where only the high priest could go, you were always going from east to west. When I send my email out that I try to send out every week to our, our church, and if you don't get that email, fill out that card in front of you or use that QR code on the seat back and I'll send it to you this week. But when I send out the email this week, I'll send you a video that I think is the best 3D rendering I've ever seen of how the temple is put together and the different imagery in the, now, it's a YouTube video. I don't claim any agreement with anything else the people you believe who, who established this video, but if you've ever wondered what did the temple look like and how was it set up, I'll include that YouTube link in my email this week so you can get an idea of that, about that. But on both sides there, those red squares, that was called the court of the Gentiles. Those people who were not Jews, which is probably 100% of us or maybe 99.9% .9 of us in here right now, those Gentiles were not able to go into the primary area. They had to stay out in this area called the court of the Gentiles and there was a dividing wall that kept them from going to the holy place, going into that interior area. And what happened in the court of the Gentiles? That's where all of these animals were bought and sold. Thousands of animals. All of this, think, here's the best imagery I know to think of. Think about being told the only place you could go to worship is to the floor where they do the stock trading. Like that's where, that's where you, that's where we would have to go to the floor where all the stocks are being traded. And there's people yelling, there's all this activity, and you're supposed to be praying. <laughs> you're supposed to be giving your devotion to the Lord. You're supposed to be worshiping. And all this chaos is going on here, and the people are not able to come in. Now remember the theology of the temple. Remember that video we watched at the beginning. When you think about the theology of the temple, it begins with creation, as God establishes creation where his presence and his power will be at work. And then, at Mount Moriah, Abraham is asked to sacrifice his one and only son. And then God steps in, and it's on that rock, it's on that place in the Mount of Moriah that the tabernacle and then the temple will be set up. And the tabernacle and the temple are established, but ultimately they become corrupt. Because what's it all supposed to lead to? It's all leading to Jesus who will come and tabernacle with us, who will be the presence of God with us, who will say, you can destroy this temple, but in three days, I will rise, raise it back to life. I will rise it, raise it again. Raise, rise, I will raise it again. Then, Jesus' power is given through the church by the power of the Holy Spirit, so that in the New Testament, individual Christians and then churches are considered the temple of God at work in the world. And then we know the whole story from creation to Revelation is a story of creation showing us all of the world as God's temple. And then when you get to Revelation, you find out that there is no temple in the new heavens and new earth because God himself is there. His power, his presence, his love, his glory are made known. The story of the Bible is the story of the temple. 
The story of the Bible is the story of worship. The story of the Bible is the story of God's holiness and glory and what it means for our lives to be devoted to him. And yet, in this story that we're reading, Jesus is walking into a situation where there's not a lot of worship going on. And there are some people that are being pushed to the side. So what does Jesus do in verse 17? What does he do? What's his response? He's already turned over the table. He's already driven people out. Verse 17, he was teaching them and saying to them, is it not written in the scriptures, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations? Now, put yourself back in that temple situation. The nations, the Gentiles, the only area they could come into is this area of chaos, this this stock trading area where all these things are going on, and the nations are called, and that's the only place they're given to pray. And Jesus says, wasn't this temple supposed to be a place where all the nations could come and pray? And when he gives this teaching, he's drawing on Isaiah chapter 56. Let me show you a couple of verses from Isaiah chapter 56. 56 verse 3, Isaiah prophesied, Let not the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord say, The Lord will surely separate me from his people. Let not the eunuch say, behold, I am only a dry tree. See that imagery that, that's connected between Isaiah and Mark? Verse six, the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord, to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord, to be his servants, these, God says, I will bring to my holy mountain, and I will make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. The Lord God, who gathers the outcasts of Israel. And that's the story of the Gospel of Mark, how Jesus is gathering all the outcasts to himself. He also says, I will gather yet others, meaning non-Jews, Gentiles. I will gather others to him besides those already gathered. So Jesus comes into the temple, and he sees that there are people that are being prevented from worshiping. He's saying, that's not what the temple is supposed to be about. But there's also another verse that Jesus quotes. If you go back to verse 17 in your Bible, the first quote that he makes, he says, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations. Then, at the end of verse 17, he says, but you have made it a den of robbers. All right, so in your Bible, making notes here, what is Jesus doing? He is drawing from Jeremiah's famous temple sermon. Go back this afternoon, this evening sometime, and read Jeremiah chapter seven. Because what Jesus is doing here is the sermon that Jeremiah gave in the temple where he said, you guys have to stop trusting in the temple. The people are going out and they're living however they want, and then they're coming back into the temple and acting like everything is okay. Have you ever heard of that challenge before? People going out and living however they want and then coming back around the people of God and saying everything's okay now? And Jeremiah says, no, we're not doing that. That is not true worship. They were going out and living lives that dishonored the Lord and then like robbers that needed robber's cave, they were coming back into the temple and treating it like it was their protective cave, like everything would be okay because they came back to the temple. Jeremiah and Jesus said that is not true worship. Verse 18, and the chief priests and the scribes heard what Jesus was saying, 
And they were seeking to destroy him, for they feared him, because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, in verse 19, they went out of the city, Jesus and his disciples. Verse 20, as they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. Okay, this is fascinating. We know from John chapter 15 that Jesus says, if you don't abide in me, you'll be thrown away and you'll wither. We know from Mark chapter four that there's, there's seed that grows up and then it withers away. Jesus is saying, you can look like you're a plant, you can look like you're alive, but if you're not connected to me, if you're not connected to my Father, you will wither away. Verse 21, what does Peter do? Peter, ever the great scholar and the disciple, he speaks up and says, hey Rabbi, look, this is the same fig tree that you cursed. Look at it, it's withered. Jesus says, of course. <laughs> Jesus answered him, have faith in God. What is Jesus saying here? He's saying, have faith in the power of God, not in the temple. Have faith in the power of God, not in this tree that looks fruitful but actually has no fruit. And not only have faith in God instead of the temple, but have faith that God might use you in bringing his plans to fulfillment in the world. Because look what happens in the next verse. Verse 23, truly I say to you, Jesus says, whoever says to this mountain, probably speaking about the mountain where the temple is built, there's a lot of debate about that, but whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Jesus is calling his disciples to believe that they are going to be involved in God's plans to bring salvation to the people. He is calling the disciples to believe that they will be able to do even greater works because of the power of the Holy Spirit within them. They're going to be able to carry out these things, to do miraculous things because God's plans are at work through them. Then, verse 24, therefore I tell you, Jesus says, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. Let's stop and talk about this verse for a minute, because this is the kind of verse that can cause incredible confusion for people. And frankly, if we're being honest here, this is the kind of verse that can cause people even to begin to doubt their faith and, and turn away from the Lord because a verse like this has been used in certain churches and a lot of times on religious TV to say, if you just speak it, you're gonna have it. it it's that word faith, just speak it and I'm gonna receive it. If I just say it, it's gonna happen. If I just pray for it, it's gonna happen. And we're all here to testify that there are things we have prayed for and wanted greatly, and they didn't turn out the way we thought they were. They didn't turn out the way we wanted. How do we understand a verse like this? Well, first off, you have to remember that the same person saying this verse is the exact same person who is going to be praying in the Garden of Gethsemane very soon. Praying, Father, let this cup pass from me but not my will, but yours be done. This verse right here 
is a prayer in faith that we would be used in the purposes of God, praying that God would do miracles in our life. And sometimes that miracle means our circumstances are changed, and sometimes that miracle means that God sustains us and uses us through the darkest times. But the prayer is, God, let me be used in your purposes. Let me be used in your plans. Let me be used in your will, that we would pray in faith, believing that the power of God is at work in the world through his people. And then in verse 25, Jesus says, whenever you stand praying, forgive. If you have anything against anyone, so that your Father also, who is in heaven, may forgive you your trespasses. He's reminding them that true prayer, true worship, true religion also has to do with the way we interact with people around us. This is not selfish prayer. This is not, I just want whatever I want. This is the kind of prayer that brings good to the people around me. What does it mean to truly experience the temple? What does it mean to truly worship? True worship is about devotion to Jesus above everything else. True worship says, here's the one who has brought God's power. Here's the one who is bringing God's plans into the world, and we devote our lives to him, and as we follow him, we experience what it means to be used by him in the world. As a church, we are here this morning to say, we are committed to true worship. We are committed to being a church that is devoted to Jesus above anything else. And we need to talk for a second about what that looks like. Because that's a great sounding phrase and everybody can say, yeah, sign me up for that, I wanna do that. We need to think for a second, so what? what? What does that look like? You ladies that are in my wife's junior and senior Sunday school class, or if you've ever been a part of one of my wife's Bible studies, you know that she loves a good chart, a good comparison chart, okay? So I wanna give you this morning a good comparison chart. We're gonna talk about the difference between true worship and false worship. And so on your notes, in your mind, however it works, you're gonna draw two columns. One column is false worship, and one column is true worship. And then we're gonna take from these passages, what does it look like? Okay, so let's begin. False worship has no fruit. It looks fruitful. The appearance, the outward appearance is great. Everything looks impressive. Everything looks green, everything looks like things are going well, like that place looks like they have it, that person looks like they know what they're doing, and yet there's no fruit. True worship, we know it produces fruit. What what does fruit look like in, in the New Testament? It's praise given to God from a transformed life. God has changed my life, and I give him the fruit of the lips of praise. We we praise him. It means I'm able to do good for others. It means new people are coming to faith, new churches are starting, the gospel is moving forward. It's not about just looking impressive, it's God has changed me on the inside and my words and my actions match. False worship is when someone claims the things of God but their life doesn't look anything like it. Their public life and their private life look completely different. True worship says we have integrity. What we say about Jesus shows up in the way that we live. We want to live lives who are fruitful. Here is my great fear for us as a church in South Oklahoma City, Moore, Norman in 2023. And if we can just be completely honest, here's my fear for myself as a pastor 
and a person individually. That we would look fruitful but not actually be producing fruit. That we would look like we have a building where everything's impressive and the people get together and they love one another and they show up and we're really good at doing church and we want to live lives. Is there fruit? Are we producing praise to God? Are we doing good for others? Are we seeing new people come to faith? Are we seeing new gospel work happening? Are we seeing the gospel spread? We must be so careful that we don't get tied up in looking fruitful but not actually being fruitful. We have to be committed to that. Look at another slide. We think about false worship. False worship, I really worked hard on these C words on the left side, you know, so, so catch this. False worship is categorized Remember when you came to the temple, there was the area for the Gentiles, the area for the women, the area for the priests, the area for the high priests. It was very sectioned off. True worship is for all people. False worship is centralized. There's really only one place that you can come to do it the right way, that you can come and experience true worship. It's very centralized. True worship happens in all places. True worship happens in my home, at my workplace, at my school, in my neighborhood. True worship is for all places. False worship is this very compartmentalized way of living, meaning I'm great at worshiping when we come together to the church and sing songs, but it doesn't really affect the other parts of my life. True worship is for all people, in all places, at all times. One more slide to think about this. What steps do we need to take? False worship is about busyness and business. That we would be busy religious consumers. And and you feel the danger in that, right? That that is not what true devotion to Jesus looks like. Busyness and business. False worship often has disunity. We're not concerned about how we're relating to others as long as we look like we're doing the right things. And mistreatment of others. When the people would come into the temple and there are all these sacrifices being made, almost certainly the poor people were being taken advantage of. True worship says the way that you treat orphans and widows, the way you treat the poor and the foreigner, that is true worship. That is true religion lived out in the world. True worship is about prayer and praise, forgiveness of others, the way we relate to one another, and doing good to all people, especially those who have great needs because of the way society is set up. Reminder for you, what is true worship? True worship is devotion to Jesus above all else. And here's the reminder I want to leave you as we wrap up this morning. This true worship that we're talking about, lives of praise and prayer, forgiveness of others, doing good for others. Let me remind you of this. This is so important that we get this right before we finish. This type of worship is only possible because of the sacrifice that Jesus has made for us. The book of Hebrews says that it is appointed that man shall live once and then die. One life, one death, one eternity. Because of that, we are reminded that Jesus himself died once, giving his life as the perfect sacrifice for us. And the fear of this, the fear of this for a church 
is that you would hear me talking about true worship and you would think, man, we've got to do more. Like, we've got to get out there and do more. We've got to do, be careful, be careful, be careful that that's your first response because we can never do these things. We can never truly worship unless we receive what Christ has done for us. Unless we understand the sacrifice that Jesus has made for us, we will never truly understand what it means to be devoted to him. And so if you're here this morning and you say, I want to worship God, I want to live for him, but I don't know how to get there, begin by remembering what Jesus has done for you. And then say, God, help me to be a person who's completely devoted to Jesus. Help me be a person of true worship. I wanna praise you. I wanna have good relationships with one another, and I wanna do good in the world. That that would be true of our lives. Would you bow your heads with me as we get ready to wrap up? As we think about what it means to worship the Lord, what it means that our lives are not like that fig tree that looked fruitful but had no fruit. We don't want our lives or our church to be like the temple where it's very busy and there's all these things going on, but the one thing we miss is devotion to the Lord. Emmaus, I pray that we would be a church that overflows with praise to God, that we would be a church for all people in all places, at all times. God, that our worship of you would go with us to Falls Creek this afternoon. Our worship of you would go with us to work this week. Our worship of you would go with us back into our neighborhoods. Our worship of you would go back with us into our marriages and our families. God, that we would be devoted to Jesus in all things, that we would produce the fruit that comes by the power of the Spirit. God, that we would be people of prayer, deep, powerful, believing prayer, praying that your will would be done. God, my prayer for our church this morning is at the beginning of this year, you would solidify us as a people of worship who are devoted to the way of Jesus. Father, guide us in that. Help that to be true of our lives. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.